Drabble Classics, a weekly podcast featuring archived episodes of the Drabblecast drawn from the vault and injected with reanimation serum for your listening pleasure. Edited by Charity Hilton. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to Drabble Classics. Our story today is The Store of the Worlds by Robert Sheckley. If you want to listen to some more Robert Sheckley, be sure to check out Escape Pod number 455, which features another great story by the author, Keep Your Shape. At the end of this episode, you'll find that the story did result in a pretty thought-provoking conversation about multiverse theory and whether we live in a mechanistic universe where everything is predetermined, impossible to change, cold, and simply no fun, or whether we live in a world where either choice or randomness or any kind of alternative possibilities even exist. So stick around at the end for that. I'm Charity Helton, and this is Drabblecast 188 from November 19th, 2010. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 188. The Drabblecast is a weekly short fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Folks, we've got a special sponsor for this week's show and the next couple ahead. Something I think you all will surely enjoy and want to add to your Kwanzaa lists this holiday season. At long last, wrenched from the innermost core of his creative innards, the one and only Frank Key has released another fat compendium of stories from his radio show, Hooting Yard on the Air, called Impugned by a Peasant and Other Stories. Some of you follow Frank Key and appreciate his brilliance. The rest of you are clearly in dire need of a dependency-forming first taste. So before we get to this week's feature story, Robert Sheckley's The Store of the Worlds, we're going to give you a little hit of the good stuff, man. A quick toke from Frank Key's new anthology, Impugned by a Peasant, better known to dealers on the streets as Blodgett Butter, Dirty Dobson, and The Trip to Pointy Town. You'll be back for more. Trust me. We're going to start things off with Frank reading one of his own stories, The Temple of Hoon Fat Gar, along with snippets from a review of Frank's book by Guardian UK book reviewer Sam Jordison. Hope you enjoy. Because it was constructed mostly from canvas and cloth, and the canvas and cloth were fed on by moths, the Temple of Hoon Fat Gar is sometimes known as the moth-eaten temple of Hoon Fat Gar. Ravaged by moths and time and lashed by wild winds that blow across the Tarputa, it is a wonder the temple still stands a thousand years after the first devotees entered it through the sacred flap. It has, of course, been much patched and stitched over the centuries, and its fabric is regularly stiffened with starch carried in canisters for miles upon miles by worshippers of the hideous bat god Fatso, for it is he to whom the temple is dedicated. The wild winds that lash and batter the temple are meteorologically very interesting indeed. Students of the weather have been perplexed by them ever since modern wild wind studies began. 
before our scientific age, of course, the sheer weirdness of the winds that blow across the Tarputa was ascribed to the mercurial and petulant nature of the hideous bat god Fatso, for it was thought that he was responsible for them, as he was for everything in the universe. We're wiser now, but no closer to getting to grips with the wild, lashing winds. Those who still believe in Fatso have a simple explanation. For them, the winds are the physical manifestation of the temperament of Fatso's magic pig. Actually, he has two magic pigs, but we can safely ignore one of them for a moment or two. The idea is that this particular pig, which it must be understood is not a real pig in any sense, somehow sends the winds howling across the Tarputa whenever it is fractious or hungry or obstreperous or maddened or otherwise out of sorts. Why the hideous bat god Fatso does nothing to placate his magic pig is an ineffable mystery. Until fairly recently, I had assumed that nonsense was pretty much history that it reached a high-water mark with Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll in the 19th century, had a short, delightful renaissance in the 1960s with Dr Seuss and Edward Gorey, and then disappeared. There might be a lot of bullshit in the modern world, but there's very little high-grade nonsense. Or so I thought, until someone introduced me to Frank Key. Frank can probably lay claim to having written more nonsense than any other man living. He's been at it for decades, quietly putting out books with titles such as Twitching and Shattered, Volleyball, Tar and Shuddering, and He Keeps His Gutter Percher in a Gunny Sack. The religion dedicated to him is short on theologians of any stripe, although one of the few to have addressed the problem contended that Fatso spent much of his time pacifying the other magic pig, which, if ever it fully awakened, would make the wild winds that batter the temple seem like tiny pipsqueak gusts of summer breeze. Other so-called scholars argued that this implied the other magic pig was somehow more powerful than Fatso himself, a clear heresy, so the first theologian was put in a crusher and crushed. There used to be at least five crushers on the mud plain around the temple of Hoon Fat Gar, so we must assume that there were plenty of heretics to be crushed. Occasionally, a bright young whippersnapper archaeologist will announce plans for a dig at the site, hoping to exhume a fantastical hoard of crushed bones, but not one of these schemes ever succeeds. It's said that Fatso himself sabotages the expeditions by causing shipwrecks and helicopter crashes and by pickling the archaeologists' brains while they sleep. In these ploys, he calls on the assistance of his flock of bitterns. Unlike the two pigs, the bitterns are not magical, but nor, of course, are they real. They're phantom spectral bitterns, beholden to Fatso for some service he did them in the distant past. We cannot guess what that might have been, for it's a topic suspiciously neglected by all the priests and wizards and jumping-about men who interpret Fatso to his followers or, I should say, who used to do so. There are none of them left alive today, at least none that we know of. Believers in Fatso are a dwindling band, often greasy and myopic and spindly and gormless. 
they tend to lack airline. Most of them probably would be crushed in the crushers if the crushers were still there, because one thing we can be quite clear about the hideous bat god Fatso is that he expected his devotees to cut a dash. There may have been few opportunities for glittering social panache on the prehistoric Tarputa, especially with those wild winds, but what rare chances there were were seized on by Fatso's followers. Great attention was paid to the angles of hats, the tying of cravats and affectations of toffee-nosed insouciance. This is not to discount a concomitant yearning for the mud encouraged by one of the magic pigs. So today there are few who haul their canisters of starch for miles and miles to stiffen the moth-eaten canvas and cloth of the temple of Hoon-Fat-Gar. Perhaps in a hundred years there will be none at all. Yet Fatso himself will still, as far as he is concerned, hold sway over the universe and his magic pig will still make the wild winds blow and his other, even more frightening magic pig will doze and slumber, dreaming of havoc. That it's an odd book hardly needs saying. Chi leads us through shaggy dog story after shaggy dog story, tantalising us with the illusion of coherence, but in the end making sure it all adds up to nothing. Or at least it seems to add up to nothing. At the back of it all, there's the disturbing thought that Chi may make perfect sense and that it's our own world which looks crazy in comparison. It's that contradiction that, for me, forms the essence of nonsense and leads me to think that Frank Key might be its finest living practitioner. It's easy for us to dismiss their very existence. Until that is, we have struggled stylishly across the inhospitable Tarputa and stooped down to crawl through the sacred flap to enter the temple. Then we see what all those believers through the century saw, a sight so magnificent and terrifying that we sprawl helplessly in the mud, shrieking, brains bedizened, gaga for the god of all gods. And that's just one of 114 short stories in this anthology, folks. It's good stuff. If you're not sold yet, it means our subliminal message frequencies are probably getting blocked out by your crappy speakers. Try listening with headphones when you get home. If you are sold, go to hootingyard.com to pick yourself up a copy. This has been a Drabble-approved public service announcement. Okay, on to this week's feature story, The Store of the Worlds by Robert Sheckley. Sheckley was a Hugo and Nebula-nominated American author who Neil Gaiman described as probably the best short story writer of the 50s and mid-60s, working in any field. Sheckley's numerous quick-witted stories and novels were famously unpredictable, absurdist, and broadly comical, what J.G. Ballard called a draft of Voltaire and Tonic. Robert Sheckley was given the author emeritus honor by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America in 2001 and died in 2005. This story originally appeared in Playboy, 1959, and audio rights were obtained through the author's estate. So, without further ado, we bring you The Store of the Worlds by Robert Sheckley. (laughs) 
Mr. Wayne came to the end of the long, shoulder-high mound of gray rubble, and there was the store of the worlds. It was exactly as his friends had described, a small shack constructed of bits of lumber, parts of cars, a piece of galvanized iron, and a few rows of crumbling bricks, all daubed over with a watery blue paint. Mr. Wayne glanced back down the long lane of rubble to make sure he hadn't been followed. He tucked his parcel more firmly under his arm, then, with a little shiver at his own audacity, he opened the door and slid inside. Good morning, the proprietor said. He, too, was exactly as described. A tall, crafty-looking old fellow with narrow eyes and a downcast mouth. His name was Tompkins. He sat in an old rocking chair, and perched on the back of it was a blue and green parrot. There was one other chair in the store, and a table. On the table was a rusted hypodermic. I've heard about your store from friends, Mr. Wayne said. Then you know my price, Tompkins said. Have you brought it? Yes, said Mr. Wayne, holding up his parcel. But I wanted to ask first. (laughs) They always want to ask, Tompkins said to the parrot, who blinked. Go ahead, ask. I want to know what really happens. Tompkins sighed. What happens is this. You pay me my fee. I give you an injection which knocks you out. Then, with the aid of certain gadgets which I have in the back of the store, I liberate your mind. Tompkins smiled as he said that, and his silent parrot seemed to smile too. What happens then? Mr. Wayne asked. Well, your mind, liberated from its body, is able to choose from the countless probability worlds which the Earth casts off every second of its existence. Grinning now, Tompkins sat up in his rocking chair and began to show signs of enthusiasm. (laughs) Oh yes, my friend. From the moment this battered Earth was born out of the sun's fiery womb, it cast off its alternate probability worlds. Worlds without end, emanating from events large and small. Every Alexander and every amoeba creating worlds, just as ripples will spread in a pond, no matter how big or how small the stone you throw. Doesn't every object cast a shadow? Well, my friend, the Earth itself is four-dimensional, therefore it casts three-dimensional shadows, solid reflections of itself through every moment of its being. Millions, billions of Earths, an infinity of Earths, and your mind, liberated by me, will be able to select any of these worlds and live upon it for a while. Mr. Wayne was uncomfortably aware that Tompkins sounded like a circus barker, proclaiming marvels that simply couldn't exist. But, Mr. Wayne reminded himself, things had happened within his own lifetime which he would never have believed possible. Never. So, perhaps, the wonders that Tompkins spoke of were possible, too. Mr. Wayne said, My friends also told me that I was an out-and-out fraud, Tompkins asked. As some of them implied that, Mr. Wayne said cautiously. But I try to keep an open mind. 
They also said that I know what your dirty-minded friends said. They told you about the fulfillment of desire. Is that what you want to hear about? Yes, said Mr. Wayne. They told me that whatever I wished for, whatever I wanted... Exactly, said Tompkins. The thing could work in no other way. There are the infinite worlds to choose among. Your mind chooses and is guided only by desire. Your deepest desire is the only thing that counts. If you have been harboring a secret dream of murder... Oh, hardly, cried Mr. Wayne. Then you will go to a world where you can murder, where you can roll in blood, where you can outdo Sod or Caesar, or whoever your idol may be. Suppose it's power you want. Then you'll choose a world where you are a god, literally and actually. A bloodthirsty juggernaut, perhaps, or an all-wise Buddha. Oh, I I doubt very much if I... Oh, there are other desires, too, Thompson said. All heavens and all hells. Unbridled sexuality, gluttony, drunkenness, love, fame, anything you want. Amazing, said Mr. Wayne. Yes, Tompkins agreed. Of course my little list doesn't exhaust all the possibilities, all the combinations and permutations of desire. For all I know, you might want a simple, placid, pastoral existence on a South Seas island among idealized natives. (laughs) That sounds more like me, Mr. Wayne said with a shy laugh. Oh, but who knows, Tompkins asked. Even you might not know what your true desires are. They might involve your own death. Does that happen often? Mr. Wayne asked anxiously. Occasionally. I wouldn't want to die, Mr. Wayne said. It hardly ever happens, Tompkins said, looking at the parcel in Mr. Wayne's hands. If you say so. But how do I know all this is real? Your fee is extremely high. It'll take everything I own. And for all I know, you'll give me a drug and it'll be just a dream. Everything I own just for a a shot of heroin and a lot of fancy words. Tompkins smiled reassuringly. The experience has no drug-like quality about it and no sensation of a dream either. If it's true, Mr. Wayne said a little petulantly, why can't I stay in the world of my desire for good? I'm working on that, Tompkins said. That's why I charge so high a fee to get materials to experiment. I'm trying to find a way of making the transition permanent. So far, I haven't been able to loosen the cord that binds a man to his own earth and pulls him back to it. Not even the great mystics could cut that cord, except with death, but I still have my hopes. It would be a great thing if you succeeded, Mr. Wayne said politely. Yes, it would, Tompkins cried with a surprising burst of passion. For then I'd turn my wretched shop into an escape hatch. My process would be free, free for everyone. Everyone would go to the earth of their desires, the earth that really suited them, and leave this damned place to the rats and worms. Tompkins cut himself off in mid-sentence and became icy calm. But I fear my prejudices are showing. I can't offer a permanent escape from this earth yet. Not one that doesn't involve death. Perhaps I never will be able to. For now, all I can offer you is a vacation. 
a change, a taste of another world, and a look at your own desires. You know my fee. I'll refund it if the experience isn't satisfactory. That's good of you, Mr. Wayne said, quite earnestly. But there's that other matter my friends told me about. The ten years off my life. That can't be helped, Tompkins said, and can't be refunded. My process is a tremendous strain on the nervous system. Life expectancy is shortened accordingly. That's one of the reasons why our so-called government has declared my process illegal. Yes, but they don't enforce the ban very firmly, Mr. Wayne said. No, officially the process is banned as a harmful fraud, but officials are men too. They'd like to leave this earth just like everyone else. The cost, Mr. Wayne mused, gripping his parcel tightly, and ten years off my life for the fulfillment of my secret desires. Really, I, I must give this some thought. Think away, Tompkins said indifferently. All the way home, Mr. Wayne thought about it. When his train reached Port Washington, Long Island, he was still thinking, and driving his car from the station to his home, he was still thinking about Tompkins' crafty old face and worlds of probability and the fulfillment of desire. But when he stepped inside his house, those thoughts had to stop. Janet, his wife, wanted him to speak sharply to the maid who'd been drinking again. His son Tommy wanted help with the sloop, which was to be launched tomorrow, and his baby daughter wanted to tell about her day in kindergarten. Mr. Wayne spoke pleasantly but firmly to the maid. He helped Tommy put the final coat of copper paint on the sloop's bottom, and he listened to Peggy tell about her adventures in the playground. Later, when the children were in bed and he and Janet were alone in their living room, she asked him if something were wrong. Wrong? You seem to be worried about something, Janet said. Did you have a bad day at the office? Oh, just the usual sort of thing. He certainly wasn't going to tell Janet or anyone else that he'd taken the day off and gone to see Tompkins in his crazy old store of the worlds. Nor was he going to speak about the right every man should have once in his lifetime to fulfill his most secret desires. Janet, with her good common sense, would never understand that. The next days at the office were extremely hectic. All of Wall Street was in a mild panic over events in the Middle East and in Asia, and stocks were reacting accordingly. Mr. Wayne settled down to work. He tried not to think of the fulfillment of desire at the cost of everything he possessed, with ten years of his life thrown in for good measure. It was crazy. Old Tompkins must be insane. On weekends, he went sailing with Tommy. The old sloop was behaving very well, making practically no water through her bottom seams. Tommy wanted a new suit of racing sails, but Mr. Wayne sternly rejected that. Perhaps next year, if the market looked better. For now, the old sails would have to do. Sometimes at night, after the children were asleep, he and Janet would go sailing. Long Island Sound was quiet then and cool. Their boat glided past the blinking buoys, sailing toward the swollen yellow moon. I know something's on your mind, Janet said, 
Darling, please. Is there something you're keeping from me? No, nothing. Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure? Absolutely sure. Then, will you put your arms around me? And the sloop sailed itself for a while. Desire and fulfillment. But autumn came, and the sloop had to be hauled. The stock market regained some stability, but Peggy caught the measles. Tommy wanted to know the difference between ordinary bombs, atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, cobalt bombs, and all the other kinds of bombs that were in the news. Mr. Wayne explained to the best of his ability, and the maid quit unexpectedly. Secret desires were all very well. Perhaps he did want to kill someone or live on a South Seas island, but there were responsibilities to consider. He had two growing children and a better wife than he deserved. Perhaps around Christmas time. But in midwinter, there was a fire in the unoccupied guest bedroom due to defective wiring. The firemen put out the blaze without much damage, and no one was hurt. But it put any thought of Tompkins out of his mind for a while. First, the bedroom had to be repaired, for Mr. Wayne was very proud of his gracious old house. Business was still frantic and uncertain due to the international situation. Those Russians, those Arabs, those Greeks and Chinese. The intercontinental missiles, the atom bombs, the Sputniks. Mr. Wayne spent long days at the office, and sometimes evenings, too. Tommy caught the mumps. A part of the roof had to be reshingled, and then already it was time to consider the spring launching of the sloop. A year had passed, and he'd had little time to think of secret desires. But perhaps next year. In the meantime... Well said Tompkins. Are you all right? Yes, quite all right, Mr. Wayne said. He got up from the chair and rubbed his forehead. Do you want a refund? Tompkins asked. No, the experience was quite satisfactory. They always are, Tompkins said, winking lewdly at the parrot. Well, what was yours? A world of the recent past, Mr. Wayne said. Oh, a lot of them are. Did you find out about your secret desire? Was it murder or a South Seas island? I'd rather not discuss it, Mr. Wayne said pleasantly but firmly. Uh, a lot of people won't discuss it with me, Tompkins said sulkily. I'll be damned if I know why. Because, well, I think the world of one's secret desire feels sacred somehow. No offense. Do you think you'll ever be able to make it permanent? The world of one's choice, I mean. The old man shrugged his shoulders. I'm trying. If I succeed, you'll hear about it. Everyone will. Yes, I suppose so. Mr. Wayne undid his parcel and laid its contents on the table. The parcel contained a pair of army boots, a knife, two coils of copper wire, and three small cans of corned beef. 
Tompkins' eyes glittered for a moment. Quite satisfactory, he said. Thank you. Goodbye, said Mr. Wayne, and thank you. Mr. Wayne left the ship and hurried down to the end of the lane of gray rubble. Beyond it, as far as he could see, lay flat fields of rubble, brown and gray and black. Those fields, stretching to every horizon, were made of the twisted corpses of cities, the shattered remnants of trees, and the fine white ash that once was human flesh and bone. Well, Mr. Wayne said to himself, at least we gave it as good as we got. That year in the past had cost him everything he owned, and ten years of life thrown in for good measure. Had it been a dream? It was still worth it. But now he had to put away all thought of Janet and the children. That was finished, unless Tompkins perfected his process. Now he had to think about his own survival. With the aid of his wrist Geiger, he found a deactivated lane through the rubble. He'd better get back to the shelter before dark. Before the rats came out. If he didn't hurry, he'd miss the evening potato ration. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Writer and philosopher Albert Hubbard said, I would rather be able to appreciate things I cannot have than to have things I'm not able to appreciate. Stick around at the end of this week's show, folks. Gonna play a related song from a band I met a couple months ago performing at Con on the Cob in Ohio called 19 Action News. They let me borrow some of their PA during the show, and we traded CDs afterwards and had some various odd adventures that night. They're an indie sci-fi rock band, and I really got to appreciate their CD on the ride home. The whole thing's about an apocalypse, end-of-the-world scenario, and each song track has a various perspective, attitude, or character vignette that contributes to an overall plot narrative. They just came out with their new CD, too. You can check them out at 19actionnews.net. That's 19actionnews.net. You'll find a link to them in our show notes. And while we're all going to websites here, consider stopping by ours, drabblecast.org, where you'll see a couple throbbing, guilt-inducing donation support options. There are a lot of costs that go into being a paying fiction market, folks, and we may have a sponsorship going at the moment, but that doesn't mean there'll always be water in the well. Even just a couple bucks helps out a lot. What helps out a whole lot more are those people who sign up for automatic monthly subscriptions, either five bucks a month or ten bucks a month, because then we can kind of plan ahead. Go for it. Be our sugar daddy, you big, sexy, anthropomorphic piece of candy. We do appreciate the help. So we've got a Twitter account. It's at the Drabblecast, and each week we pick a 100-character story posted in the Drabblecast discussion forums, and we tweet it out as our weekly winner, in addition to running it on the show. Here's this week's from first-time winner Ben Hathaway. I had heard that love is blind. Just before my son's viola recital, I prayed that it was also deaf. 
As an exception to the rule, we picked that story even though it counted spaces as characters. Usually we don't count those, but it was just too fun to pass on. And Ben will know for next time. Ben apparently lives in Tanzania with his wife and their five adopted Tanzanian kids, one of whom, he says, is profoundly deaf and was the inspiration for that twabble. They run a children's center for orphaned and abandoned babies with 55 bundles of Tanzanian joy, some as small as one kilogram. So they're apparently very easy to store. Check them out at foreverangels.org. Ben says that living in Tanzania isn't easy, that local Tanzanian true-life soap operas regularly include witches and zombies. No kidding, he says. There's a village near his home that's so overrun by witches that the police won't go near it for fear of becoming slave to their evil powers. Typical 5-0. They're supposed to protect and serve, right? What do they think that means? Waiting tables at Shoney's? No, it means you might end up a mindless minion of some arcane demonic evil, okay? If you don't like it, take it up with the union. Be careful out there, Ben. At least you've got plenty of tiny angels stashed around the house. All right, folks, that's our show. Going to try and get next week's out a little early for you so you can have a little something to get through that Thanksgiving holiday traffic. Drive safe, everybody. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Tell a friend or a family member about us. Spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Lizanne Hurd. You can see more of her art and read some of her very entertaining stories at www.freewebs.com forward slash F5IVER. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, a flock of phantom spectral bitterns, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that every object casts a shadow.
Welcome back. We just listened to The Store of the Worlds by Robert Sheckley. I'm here with Jimmy. Teresa could not make it today, so she will catch up next time. Hi there. Do we want to talk about the Frank Key story first? We have to. <laughs> okay. So I have to admit, Frank Key, I have generally negative feelings about in terms of his fiction. I know Norm is a big fan, uh, obviously, because he's been a sponsor over lots of time. And I have to say, I, I remember his most recent anthology, which got a lot of airtime on the, the podcast, and it just wasn't my cup of tea. It's definitely weird, so I think it's actually in genre for the podcast. But this story, surprisingly, I really liked. I thought it was it was cool because I like stories about gods and their mythos and the kind of ridiculousness that is the mythos behind a god. And, and if you look at any of them, they're not too much less weird than this one. It's just this one's going out of its way to make it obvious. So I thought it was interesting. What did you think, Charity? I was also a fan of the hideous bat god Fatso <laughs> and his moth-eaten cloth temple and his magic pigs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. You know, I also have encountered enough Frank Key that just leaves my brain going, I, I don't know what just happened, that I I worry a little bit when he shows up. But I've started to notice that I've, you know, both in listening to the archives and in the new ones, I've been finding more and more that I like. And I liked this one. This one was good. Well, his his previous collection had like a hundred stories in it. And I think when you when you write in that level of proliferate writing, that you're not necessarily going to get a winner every time. So I think picking out the good ones is is the key with Frank Key. <laughs> the key with Frank Key. I see what you did there. Apologies for the pun. <laughs> Apology not accepted. <laughs> Unacceptable. No, I, I I don't know if that was even if it was even nonsense that much. I mean, they compared it to Lewis Lewis Carroll and Jabberwocky and things like that. And and Jabberwocky is, I think, a purer form of nonsense. I mean, this one made sense. You had the cloth eaten temple with the followers bringing starch through miles and miles to strengthen it, and you know the theologians who suggested that the hideous bat god Fatso was not as strong as the second magic pig, and were put into a crusher and crushed. Well, I think it was nonsense because it was just completely made up and there wasn't, it wasn't really justified by a narrative. It was just fake information, which I mean, I think is a interesting, I think it's an interesting thing to do. I, I think people would consider this Carolyn, Carolyn, what's the word where something is like Carol? Like of Lewis Carroll. I don't know. Carolian. Okay. Clearly. This Let's is in it. this style of Carolian. Cannoli. Um, Cannolian. <laughs> okay. So if you go back in time a few weeks to Escape Pod, you will find another Robert Sheckley story very recently, Escape Pod episode number 455, Keep Your Shape. So if you enjoyed this story, you should go give that one a listen as well. Jimmy, I know you listened to Keep Your Shape. Did you like that story? Yeah, uh, it was just to give it the briefest of summaries. It's about a uh, world of shapeshifters and the conservatism in their world is holding only correct, appropriate forms of shape. And it's it's just a matter of kind of balance between conservatism and expression. And I mean, you know, it's 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 definitely subsequently been done, I think. But but it's 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 definitely a premise that's been subsequently done. But it was definitely, uh, I think, innovative for the time and certainly is a is a great listen. I think that story and this story are both kind of good examples of golden age fiction where there's kind of a a single concept that's being explored. There's as usual, male protagonist, and uh, you're just trying to like get through the basic premise of the story. There's there's not a lot of 
complex world building. There's not a lot of character development usually. It's just a matter of we have a cool idea. It's very like classic golden age science fiction. It's kind of how I reacted to the store of the worlds. Right. It definitely. I actually did listen to Keep Your Shape and yeah, it definitely had that classic sci-fi theme where it was a, a little bit obvious. It's the whole non nonconformity is is overcome by or, or rather the conservative converts to not to nonconformity, which is kind of like a yeah. classic trope. It's very it's very easy to have character progression when you do that, but maybe not the deepest well to dig. So this is a sort of classic 50s story because it's dealing with themes of nuclear war, that sort of thing. That was pretty common back then. It had a bit of a twist at the end when we realized what Mr. Wayne's desires actually were. Did you see that twist coming before it hit you? Yeah, I mean, actually, from the beginning, before I even knew about the premise of the story, it was clear to me that they were in some kind of a destroyed world. I mean, the 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 building or ship, or it wasn't really clear what, what this room was, the, the store, was obviously built out of scrap metal, and it didn't seem like it was completely, like, because of the weirdness of the store. It seemed like the world was like that. It was in down this crumbled alley. It reminded me of, like, Britain after the Blitz or something, and... So it just seemed like, oh, okay, this is obviously an post-apocalyptic world. So, so it wasn't really a twist for me because I just thought, well, that's probably the way it is. And once we got into the nice world that he went back to, about halfway through, I think I was like, oh, okay, this is probably the this is probably the the fantasy. And then going back to his regular life will be a great shock or something. What do you think of the taking 10 years off your life in order to experience this dream? Is that something that makes sense as being worth it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you think about it, you know, this particular environment where boots, a knife, and some copper wire are your most valuable possessions, I'm not even sure you're really going to live your natural life expectancy anyway. So it just seems kind of moot, probably, in this world. I'm, I'm surprised there isn't a line out the door. I mean... <laughs> If you, I think if you think about the world building of this story too much, it breaks apart. I really don't think that the, it's necessarily the sturdiest structure. I think the great thing about this story is the the wishful thinking nature of things as opposed to a cleverness of the of the setup or something like that. That's not really what it's about. And it's, it's all, you know, it's it's what a lot of golden age writers tried to do, but I don't think the successful ones were clever setup people. They were descriptive writers, which there was a lot of description and, and and a lot to connect to. So I have to admit, this is something you see occasionally in TV shows or fantasy fiction or science fiction where people lose X amount of time off their life. And I have to admit that makes the logical part of my brain go, no, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know how you can measure and know that you'd lost 10 years off the end of your life. I think it was timely for the for the period that this story was published, people were very aware of radiation and radiation sickness. And I think that people that were exposed to radiation, there was kind of a convention of saying, well, the, it, it takes some amount of years off your life. Obviously, that's not statistically accurate per person. But I think maybe the people in the story could also kind of get the context of that statement. So maybe it's not a logical fallacy. It's just that we're taking them too literally. They mean it's a 10 years off your life type of nervous breakdown of some sort. Uh, maybe it causes you to have some kind of a, you know, late in life, like black lung kind of a situation or something, you know, that kind of sits similar. That, that's my reaction to that idea. That that really actually helps a lot. I think that's this is a case where I'm just taking it too literally, which I do too much. <laughs> but that makes sense. That actually helps a lot. 
then there's the idea of desires guiding where you go in these worlds. I mean, first of all, there's a the question, are these parallel worlds or are these just dreams, which seems more likely? Well, I, I think that there, I think, again, I like to take things at face value. I'm not a big, like, unreliable narrator person. I like stories that are about things, not about trying to confuse me whether they're about things. And so I'm just taking it at face value that that's actually what's happening. They did, they, you know, it's a, it's a black box. The, the the mechanism, the gizmos is how they put it. So I'm kind of whatever about that. But when it comes to the what what the desires are, I thought that was really interesting because he does go into like you could just be running through a field killing people or you could be a god or you could be any of these things. And I think it's interesting that like the author decided to tantalize us with the most extreme examples or the most idyllic example so it makes it so that the, the for someone who's completely in a war torn place that the best thing would be normalcy but again i, I you know i kind of it didn't hit that hard for me because i was kind of hoping for something exciting and and one of those those things so it's maybe maybe it was oversold maybe the the great you could be a god and have all this power like i was kind of like that'd be a cool story and so like going home to janet and <laughs> By the way, I think it's completely weird that this kid has a sloop. I, I'm I'm not a sailing expert or anything, but so I thought ships were defined by the way they're rigged, and I think a sloop is a relatively largish kind of vessel. I don't think of a sloop as like a normal sailing vessel. Maybe it's a nuance that I don't understand. I'm sure well, you would think the author would do some some. I have things. always I've always had the impression that a sloop is a one masted sailboat with the fore and aft mainsail and a jib. I don't think you've always had. <laughs> I don't think you've always had that impression. I think Google has always had that impression, and you yep, have an yep. iPad. I did just Google that. So and it's a it's, it's a, a one masted sailboat. Oh, okay, okay. Small square rigged sailing warship. Ah, see, I think the the small square square rigged. Yes, there we go. Warship with two or three masts. Is what I was thinking of. So that must be the archaic usage that I've seen in historical naval fiction. But okay, so I guess yep. this guy has a tiny sailboat instead of a sloop of war, which I was kind <laughs> of envisioning. And I was like, really? They were able to paint that in one day? And I don't know, that just distracted me because I have an unhealthy interest in nautical fiction. Yes, you do. I've often thought that about you. So I thought it was interesting, though, that he had a sloop at all, even though it was not a historical sloop, but a modern sloop. But the fact that he had a sloop and he was a stock market guy and they had maids, he was clearly wealthy. And I think for me, the point of that was to 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 taunt you with the idea that when Mr. Tompkins said, you have to give virtually everything you own, that this would be a lot and that he would be destroying not just his own life, but his children and his wife's you know, life that they're accustomed to when, of course, it turned out not to be any of that. Yeah, I, I think that was well played. I think that was a smart, you know, metaphorical balancing act of, you know, if if, it, if everything he he's worth would be a lot of money in the in the world, but in the actual world, everything he's worth is like, you know, a few items. And so it's just a matter of, you know, it, it also seemed to me that maybe that might have been his family in the past. I was kind of thinking that maybe that was his family and it's just a return, which frankly I feel like makes this story so much less interesting because it's that I've just seen that that story so many times in like the Twilight Zone, you know. So the idea of just another iteration of that's less exciting to me. I think it would have been cool if like he's a 1950s guy post 
atom bomb and then he wants to be a you know king of the skulls or something for some, for some reason that actually is so much more compelling to me maybe because i've been listening to the Drabblecast too much and that is the kind of thing that i think where things would go and this is so much more tame because i think nobody can even nobody could imagine the post-apocalypse let alone you know the, the this weird multiverse theory of post-apocalypse i mean there was a lot of stuff going on for a 1950s 60s reader so the audience at the time, the Twilight Zone was new for them. So maybe the fact that you've watched too much Twilight Zone is, you know, you've, you've been the product of being from the future, not when the story was written. It's hard to have. It's hard to have a realistic viewpoint on these stories because everything that we've seen was created by people who've read all these stories and have been influenced by all these things. Um, I remember reading a short story and then seeing it on the Twilight Zone and then seeing it in a movie like 20 years between each event, you know, like in terms of when they were published. And it's just, that's kind of the world we live in. So it's, it's, uh, this always feels like a period piece when we go back to something from the golden age now. Do you remember what short story was? I don't remember any. I remember there was a giant eye. That's all I remember. <laughs> and I remember there being a giant eye in the Twilight Zone. I was like, oh, I just read this story. Mm. But I have no memory of it. So I've often had this theory that the reason we're so fascinated by apocalypse stories is because we live in this world of luxury and nice things. And in the 50s, it was true too, maybe not as many nice things. But I feel like our fascination with apocalypse stories is this idea, the idea that we take for granted all the luxury that we have, the very nice, easy lives that we have. And the apocalypse story is that that reminder that at any moment in time, it could be taken away. Something could happen and we could suffer devastation of the world we live in. And it's just so easy to forget that when you go to Applebee's and you, you know, drive your nice car around and stuff like that. And you live in your air conditioned house with all the food you could ever want in the freezer. So to me, the fact that he's fantasizing about his recent past just goes along with the standard apocalypse idea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I agree. I think that's a pretty common premise and again maybe that's why i'm just not that excited about this story i think it was really beautifully written i think the description of the his his home life i think the description of the inside of the weird building all that was really great and i can totally appreciate a short story for the way that it can build images in a very short period of time i think that's one of the key components of great writing for a short story but at the same time I can think of a lot of like Ray Bradbury stories where like they elicited an emotional reaction in me and had that great uh, description. And yet this one kind of, it fell flat in terms of it didn't actually connect with me. I didn't, didn't make me feel, oh, what if everything was gone tomorrow? Like that's kind of, I think what they were trying to elicit. And for this, it felt more like he was trying to do a gotcha. And because of that, I felt like I kind of saw through it. I mean, I will say, if you look at a lot of Bradbury's work, there's not a ton of gotcha, you know, there it's, it's mostly like this thing is happening and here's what the sky looked like and that's it. And, and maybe some of the people don't know what's going on, but the reader usually does know. And, and I think Bradbury's aware of that. I'm comparing them because I think the, the writing and the description was, was kind of near, they were, you know, it was approaching Bradbury-esque levels of description, but it was still, you know. It didn't quite get you quite as much. Yeah. So, oh. Let's go backwards a bit. Parallel worlds. So here's the thing then. If we do what you do and you say, well, the, well, Tompkins says this is going to make you go into a parallel world, we're just going to assume that. That's more fun, right? It's science fiction. It's more fun to, to assume that this is what's really happening. Then I have all these issues. If this is a parallel world 
and he's being thrust into some parallel world. Isn't there a parallel Mr. Wayne? What happens to parallel Mr. Wayne when apocalyptic Mr. Wayne shows up and takes over his life for a few months? Well, you know, I, I think the, again, the black box of the story doesn't really account for that kind of thing. Physicists had considered multiverse theory and each decision branching, kind of that idea of like each decision you make, which, by the way, like is one of my least favorite theories because it's so anthropomorphic. It's so anthropic. It's like unless every single molecular quantum you know chance thing collapses into like two different things and each of those is a different world the idea of like you know mr jones went left one day or went right one day it's so like human centric and that's how a lot of these are built you know that it doesn't do a lot for me because the cosmos doesn't know what a human is and so why would it be constructed around our decisions so i'm not really sure that does a lot for me, but if you're taking that as as a rote and you're saying, like, you know, every kind of life form can have this effect on, on the universe, then I don't know. I think what you're doing is you're just dropping down into that space that's there for that life form. Because, again, it also thinks that one human in this track is equivalent to another human with the same name in the other track. Like, again, it's a very anthropic way of looking at you know, cosmic, the cosmic, um, cosmology. It's a very human centric way of looking at cosmology. And I think it makes no sense. So I don't really have a lot of like, well, it clearly works this way because no, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a convention for writers. But don't those, doesn't the theory hold that the same is true for butterflies choosing to fly to one flower or another or, you know, other choices that other non-human creatures would make. Yeah, but they're still, they're still creatures. So, like, what about, like, motes of dust? Are each of those motes of dust causing a new universe? Is, I, I mean, I, I kind of think maybe that was what he wanted to say, but he decided he'd go with life forms as the as the mover, as the thing that makes the difference. It's never been my favorite multiverse theory. It just seems like, why would universes be created or diverged from? Why, why, does, why does the universe care about all the choices. Why can't there just be one randomly chosen series of choices? And that's just the way it turned out. It's a very, it's very Lovecraftian. It's very cosmicism way of looking at it, I guess. And I, I might be incorrect about this, but I feel like from conversations we've had in the past that you, that you think that the universe has to be the way that it is and that the choices we've made are the choices we had to make based on the prior states of the universe. It, it seems like this idea that choices can result in parallel universes requires that there be free will in the first place and that we could make different choices. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, if you think about it, at what point is the universe noticing that the butterfly made a decision to go one way or the other and start recording a new path on both of the universe, like on a new universe template or splitting it or whatever happens? Why is that considered a decision? Because again, there's no there's no notice of sentience in the universe. Like when you get mad, like clouds don't appear, you know. So it's it, I don't really understand how even and I really don't think any of it makes sense. Like truly, it's a trope. It's a mechanism for writers. I've always thought that. I don't think that. I mean, this was in like Dragon Ball Z. Like there, <laughs> literally, there was a like there was a um. They actually brought it up in in one of these things because somebody wants to come back to life, right? And they're like, well, it's impossible to bring anyone back to life. What's really happening is 
you're going to be trans transferred into another universe where you're being brought back to life or something where like that you're just jumping universes you're not actually the magic isn't happening you're just being transported to a universe where that is the case and again it's so like anthropic it's so humans matter or so butterflies opinions about things matter like it just doesn't make any sense with the way i see the world so well, and, i never thought about this distinction but i think it really there's really two different ways to think about it there's a way to think that every time anything makes a choice it spreads off into a different universe but there's also a way to think where it's anytime there's two possibilities about what could happen that the universe would spread off that might remove you know remove the the choice element a little bit if it's just but when, any but when would there be two options like give me an example where there is a choice because at the end of the day if we have a mechanistic universe where there isn't magic going on and the thing a causes thing b to happen there's no reason why b wouldn't happen there's no like inhibitory like step that says well b could have happened but instead the ball went up instead of down or you know like i don't i don't really understand where that break point happens where you say like hey, I'm going to throw this ball against the wall and then, you know, veers right. Well, because of the way you threw it, it went right. So it going left, does that, does the decision start at your arm? But again, (laughs) your arm was a result of a mechanistic process and all of your decisions are a result of a mechanistic process as far as we understand. So it just, I don't really understand where this decision is happening. doesn't make any sense to me. At all. There's no, I have no construct at all for like this to make sense. Well, I mean, taking the idea of decision away, I think the real question is, is there randomness? Are there situations where there's a state of the universe where things could go one way or another? And I'm not sure that I believe that we do have a mechanistic universe. There seems to be evidence with the quantum theories of the universe that there are elements of randomness and we don't know how deeply those pervade what happens in the universe because we don't really understand it that well. I don't think there is a lot of randomness as much in in quantum as there is uh, kind of Gaussian distributions of things. So like eight things are going to happen. Half of them are going to turn red. The other half are going to turn blue. The randomness is like which of those things is going to be red or blue. But A, it's only random probably because we don't understand it. And B, the average is always the same. So there isn't like a under that kind of situation, maybe there aren't as many branching universes because even if there is what you're calling randomness, the overall distribution of choices being made is going to end up with very similar numbers, types of choices of those types. And so maybe there are only so many. It's it's a, it's a narrower cone of of the of the decision tree branching off than we think. I don't know. Yeah. So obviously this is really integral to Robert Sheckley's story <laughs> because, you know, he really was thinking about, you know, quantum effects at this time. I mean, it's really only hit the pop culture in, in you know, right. the last 30 years maybe. But anyway. <laughs> no, we're definitely getting off the story. But so my last thought is that it still leaves open the question of how new universes pop into existence each time. I mean, first there's a question of whether or not there is randomness, which we don't know for sure, but... Uh, whether or not the universe is truly mechanistic, whether or not choices are actually made. And if we did decide that choices do get made and that things could be different, they, there could be many possible states of things, then we're left with the question of why does that then entail multiple universes popping into existence for each choice? And that seems hugely problematic, too. But as yeah. you said, we're just black boxing this because it's science fiction and they mm. need to just say we're, we can't tell a story unless we start from this point and say, hey, this could be true. This is the magic that we're using for this sci-fi story. It's basically 
uh, what is it, Fantasy Island or whatever that show was where you go and, like, anything can happen and it teaches you a lesson at the end. Like, that was a pretty long-running show. And it's, it's kind of the same situation where, like, you, you go in, you get this shot, you see something, and it teaches you about yourself. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally what this story is setting you up for. So it's kind of not a physics story. It's kind of a Fantasy Island story. Do you think that your truest desires would match your fantasies? If, if you took the shot, would you be in Fantasy Island type world where you're a superstar? Or would you would your truer desires be something different? I don't know. One of the things, again, I feel like was kind of untapped potential in, in the story was when he's like, well, you know, a lot of people go in thinking they're going to want one thing. And at the end of the day, they're like, they revel in blood or they die or they become a god or, they, you know, like all those those things. And I think that's really fascinating. I think the idea that what you want consciously and what you're yearning for potentially unconsciously being tremendously different from one another is a really cool idea and i i feel like that wasn't actually explored in this story the thing that he wanted was kind of obvious like he lived in a war-torn desolate world and the thing that he wanted was not to do that and that's where he went and i was kind of like okay but if, he, if we'd started with the businessman who actually had that family maybe he would become king of the skulls i'm just saying i think that that I, I, that would be so much more interesting to me because it's like, oh, we get to really de delve into what the psyche wants, not everyone wants a picket fence, which is kind of the moral of the story from the 50s. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's not surprising. So. so if you are king of the skulls, are the skulls walking, talking skulls of dead people? No, I think are, the skulls are people you game? killed. Oh, like and then you're, you're like, like you're sitting on a throne of skulls. You like rule that's, because you. Oh. This is like Aztec territory. Yeah, All right, for right. sure. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening in with us and come back next week for some more Jabba Classics. See you then. Bye.